Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Nicolas Blinko. Nicolas is an author, critic, and screenwriter. He works for a number of outlets in Britain, but more importantly, he wrote two amazing books. In fact, one of them was probably my favorite book during the pandemic. So the first one, published in 2017, Bethlehem, Biography of a Town. But more importantly, for today's talk, the book published in 2019, More Noble Than War, the story of football in Israel and Palestine. But beware, there's also the American version of it. Yes, because football does mean something different across the ocean. So for the American audience, more noble than war is the same, but a soccer history of Israel-Palestine. Nicholas, welcome. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, Roberto. I'm, I'm so pleased to be here. Nicholas, one of the striking features of your book about football, and we should agree to call it football as we are both Europeans, even though I'm sitting in America, Absolutely. so, you know, we, we might switch to soccer here and there, is that you're starting the book talking about yourself living in Bethlehem, and so I'm very curious mm. to know how you got to live in Bethlehem. But more importantly, you're saying openly that before that experience, you didn't like or didn't love football, which is quite mm. strange considering you're, you're British. I know it's, this is a bit of a stereotype, but it works for me too as an Italian. So Nicolas, what is your connection with football? How did it develop? And of course, how did you, uh, you know, connect it before? How did you connect before with Bethlehem? Um, well, I connected with Bethlehem through through the most um, the most romantic way possible. I fell in love with a girl from Bethlehem. We were both studying philosophy at Warwick University in England. Um, I 
I'd been so deep into um, questions of philosophy, you know, the dialectical materialism and speculative questions that I, I really think the whole intifada had passed me by. I mean, I was that much of an idiot. Um, and I met Leila Sansor and we fell in love and I, I went to Palestine and really my first trip to Palestine coincided with Yasser Arafat's renewed trip to Palestine. So my first experience was uh, of Bethlehem was seeing Yasser Arafat give a speech from the roof of the Church, church of the Nativity. And it was an, an exciting and optimistic time and the optimism died quite quickly. Um, by 2002, Layla, my wife, uh, my then wife, I'm afraid we're divorced now, but she was making she was making a film and we were really living in Bethlehem by that point because um, she, she made a film called Jeremy Hardy versus the Israeli army and then made a second film about Bethlehem itself. And I was living with her and I just kind of, I loved living in Bethlehem, but at the same time I was, yeah, as you might expect, a little bit homesick. And I was notionally a Manchester City fan. This dates back to the rave. I've got to confess, I was a raver. So the rave years in Manchester, I was, I went to Hacienda all the time, but Manchester City were the big team in the part of Manchester that I lived in. So I was notionally a Manchester City fan, but I hadn't really played football as a kid because I've got very bad eyesight. I think, in fact, I was a bit dyspraxic when I was a kid, and I just could not kick a ball, hit a ball, and I wasn't going to get interested in a game that, that just defeated me. But, yeah, I, living in Bethlehem uh, as a kind of 35-year-old, and then 40-year-old, um, I was homesick. I started looking at Manchester, Manchester City again. And really what got me into it, oddly, was the politics because Manchester City was going through a crazy, crazy time. We were bought by the Thailand um, MP who was on the run, Thaksin Shinawatra. And it was so crazy. I began to see that football wasn't just a game. It was a kind of capitalist soap opera. It was the most kind of fascinating insight into world politics and in fact later on I got deeply into football and I, I see Manchester City play as often as possible and, I, and I'm obsessive about strategy and tactics but I've got to admit I'm, I came late to the table and luckily I'm, I'm watching the greatest perhaps one of the greatest teams ever assembled in Manchester City so I find, find football so exhilarating so wonderful and so full of strategy and, um, and tactics and personal stories. But I've never forgotten that it's also um, all about politics uh, and it reveals something about a place. Um, and so when I was looking for something to do, you know, a way to write a history of Bethlehem and Palestine, uh, I settled on, I said on this idea that football is also a way into the issues and in many ways a better way than, than many others. Quite often when we give a political history, we look at the, uh, the larger political organisations and especially on the Israeli side, the political groupings were formed in Europe. 
Um, and even on the Palestinian side, some of the major political groupings were formed in Syria or, re or relate to a larger um, socialist idea or pan-Arab idea or various other ideas that, that stretch beyond Palestine. But when you get down to the sports clubs, they're actually set up, um, half of them are set up by political parties and the other ones are set up by things like church groups or friendly associations or mosque groups. Um, and so it's immediately the politics of the place and how people organize themselves on the ground, day to day. Uh, and quite quickly, you find out that the major politicians were, were members of these sporting groups and some of them played football. And football, football very quickly became the major obsession of all, all of the sporting clubs and associations. Boxing too, but football especially. So that was how I got into it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating how, you know, sometimes someone just out of nothing can develop such a love for a sport. And uh, I must say that actually I'm, I'm an admirer of Manchester City. And I was probably more in the past, uh, particularly the years of Mancini and Balotelli, mostly because oh, yes. of fellow Italians and uh, obviously right. all of the controversies about Balotelli. But obviously we're not here to talk about Manchester City. <laughs> yeah, Balotelli, I can talk about all day. <laughs> I, I would love went, to, but I want to talk to about the development store. of uh, football in, in Palestine, mm -hmm. particularly starting from the very beginning, so the late 19th century, the early 20th century. Like in my own work, mm -hmm. uh, working on late Ottoman Jerusalem, I came across even some pictures and, uh, you know, stories about some of the earlier clubs, mostly funded by, established by British, living in the city and connected to the uh, church, uh, the Anglican Church of St. George. Mm -hmm. But that would be just like one simple example, but there was more to it. And eventually, throughout the 20, particularly throughout the early 20th century, football became very prominent across uh, the spectrum of the population living in Palestine. So the international, obviously, but also mm. with the new arrivals of, of the Zionists from different European countries, but also along mm. uh, amongst the local Palestinians. So I was wondering mm. if you can give us a sense of you know, this developing history at the, at the beginning of the 20th century and how football, as you already talked about politics, became a tool for one own group. You know, how football was used to promote uh, some sort of idea of uh, belonging to a specific group. Yes, um, it is fascinating because the history of football is kind of exactly the same length as the history of the conflict. and they they do they do keep in step in a peculiar way unlike everything in israel and palestine there, there's a dual narrative on the palestinian side as you say the first team was associated with the school of saint george cathedral which is an anglican school in some ways a feeder school for for the the college in alexandria that edward said for instance went to um, so that was the that formed the first teams and significant Palestinian politicians played, played for it because they went to this school. Um, and if they didn't go, they had relatives who went because uh, it seems that prominent, Palest pa prominent Palestinian families from Jerusalem seem to spread their children out between the, the, the different European schools. 
So for instance, the guy who became the Mufti of Jerusalem, his cousin was at um, St. George's school. And it seems that he watched them. And then another school, um, there was another Anglican school up in um, Haifa. They started playing them. They started playing, uh, they started sending teams to play the, um, the uh, Protestant school in Beirut, which became the American University of Beirut. Um, very quickly, uh, this was a, the early 1900 to 1910 was a real time for Palestinian nationalism. Um, so there was a, a Palestinian nationalist school started. They immediately started a football team. The, um, the Palestinian newspaper in Jaffa, um, they, they sponsored a football team. So re really, before the First World War, there was a lively Palestinian football scene. On the Jewish side, um, football was really less important. There's some famous photographs of people uh, of football teams from the sports associate, the Jewish Sports Association in Jaffa. But the main focus before the war, before the First World War, was, um, was, was on a kind of martial style exercise thing. So they were marching up and down doing calisthenics, really. It was more like calisthenics and gymnastics. And they were led by. Um, led by a guy called, I've forgotten his name, Zvi something or other, who was a Jewish convert, in fact. He was from a, um, an unusual Russian Christian sect who, who was Sabbatarians. They believed that the Sabbath should be moved to the Jewish Sabbath, and they adopted other Jewish practices because they were you know, Christians who were going back to their roots. They became so unpopular in, um, in Tsarist Orthodox Russia that a large community went to Palestine um, and they were called Subutniks. And quite a lot of that, the famous Jewish institutions, the army, as well as the sporting club, the Maccabees, were formed by these Subotniks um, who kind of gradually gave up Christianity and became assimilated Jews. So uh, they were really, uh, the Maccabee started, the Maccabee Sports Association started as a, as a kind of more of a gymnastics marching up and down, preparation for being soldiers, a kind of very martial Cub Scout type of organization. And it was only really in the 1920s that they started taking football seriously, which reflected that there was a new kind of Jew coming to Palestine now that it was a lot safer, it was established by the British as a Jewish homeland. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was in disarray. So people were looking, were worried about their futures and looking for a new place to live. So there was a wave of new immigration to what Britain had designated as the Jewish homeland in Palestine. And they were coming from the industrialized cities of the Austro-Hungarian, the ex-Austro-Hungarian Empire. And unlike the Russians, they had played football before and loved football. So the big, um, the big sports association like Maccabee, the Maccabees, got more into football because the kids they were looking to recruit were getting more into football. 
but also almost immediately, uh, about 1925, 1926, there was a huge argument in the football community, which reflects an argument in the Jewish political community between the, the um, what was the nascent Labour Party under Ben-Gurion and the old Maccabees, which were under the old Russians who set up the community in Jaffa, which became uh, Tel Aviv ultimately. Uh, and it's a classic landlords and factory owners uh, conflict with, with the new workers and the Labour Party wanted to set up its own sports team. So they basically poached the youth team of the Maccabee of Jaffa and they became the first Labour Party team. Uh, and yeah, that even today that they're the they're two of the greatest, uh, well, oldest and best uh, of the Israeli football clubs. Um, and the, the, yeah, the, these, new, these new Jewish workers brought in a new kind of football. So they, they were better at playing football than anybody had been up until that point. And it became a much more, a much more fast, free-flowing game. At, at the time, the, the, possibly the greatest football club in Europe was a, a Jewish team from Vienna. So who toured Palestine. So, um, so uh, they, they were called Hakoa, who VN, the Viennese Hakoa, which is a, a Jewish team. Uh, and, and Hakoa visited Tel Aviv and um, played an exhibition match with, the, with both the Maccabee side and the, and the rival Labour side. And football really took off uh, amongst, um, amongst the Jews of Palestine in pre-state pre -state Israel. But at the same time, uh, Palestinian football had been in the doldrums of it, but that too was improving uh, and more and more teams were emerging. There were the, the big political newspapers um, on the Palestinian side were all happy to support teams. And uh, the new Palestinian Youth Party sponsored a cup so there, there was lively competition on both sides, but they didn't really play each other. And the British wanted to encourage them to play each other. Uh, so set up what would be the equivalent of the FA Cup um, for Palestine. And this is where the story starts to get both murky and underhand in that it was the Maccabees who were given um, given the authority by the British to set up this competition. And they grabbed it with both hands. Um, the, the leader of the Maccabees at the time had just failed to get onto the Olympic Committee because they pointed out that he wanted a Jewish only organization and that didn't reflect the makeup of Palestine. And football became a new route. He was a gymnast. He wasn't particularly interested in football, but it became a new route for him to to get an international, to get international recognition for a Jewish, a, a Jewish organized, a Jewish society in Palestine. And it would be recognition that recognized it as the leader of sports of Palestine. Um, he 
he applied to FIFA, which at the time was only 20 years old, and um, told them he was running the FA Cup. He, we know that he made up a lot of the teams that were going to participate in this cup. They just didn't exist. He also claimed that um, there, were, there was going to be Arab-Palestinian participation. And he claimed that an Arab-Palestinian was at the meeting. It seems to me, from all the evidence, that the guy just wasn't there. If he'd had any kind of conversation, he didn't go back. And in fact, the minutes of the meeting are in Hebrew, which, which he would not understand. So there, there was an entirely fictitious uh, application made to FIFA, and FIFA accepted uh, the Maccabees as the Palestinian FA. Uh, and they were called the Palestine FA in English, and in Hebrew, they were called Eretz Israel uh, Football Association. And, and they ran the, they really ran the league through the 30s, which meant again that Palestinians pretty much boycotted them. And they were very, very, I mean, this is one of the problems of writing a history, I found. It always had to be a dual narrative because there were very, very few occasions where they'd both played each other. And really, there aren't any leagues that feature both until the Second World War, which is a very, very special, uh, a special situation that the Palestinians wound up their own leagues um, after the general strike. Uh, the British put pressure on the Jewish side to welcome them. And there's a quite a lot of army sides too, because although Palestine was thoroughly militarized during the Second World War, in fact, there wasn't much action there. So there's plenty of time for uh, sporting endeavors and military sporting endeavors. And the Palestinians, and I think, I believe the Jewish sides too, would do war would do charity matches and send money off to the, to the war issue. So there's just a kind of tiny period in the Second World War where there's British military sides, uh, Jewish sides and Palestinian sides all playing together. But otherwise, they tend not to, except for one special, um, one special exception, which is, oddly, Betar Jerusalem. But perhaps we'll talk about that later. It looks like the British essentially replicated with football what they did with politics and economic development. They chose one side, they supported one side, essentially, not necessarily against the other, but with better and uh, better tools and sort of providing them with a better infrastructure. Well, like I would say it was much more deliberate than that. I mean, there might have been a lot of British people and a lot of British administrators who were simply supporting one side without particularly going into it. But um, there, there were clear major support, supporters of it. Um, the, the, um, uh, I don't have my book in front of me, so I'm, I'm, I, my recollection for names is always terrible. But there, there was a British um, industrialist and aristocrat who funded the Palestine FA when it was Jewish run, but he was also part of FIFA and he was part of the FA in England and he's he worked very hard to get the Palestine FA to to form a national team for instance the national team was in fact the Maccabee site Tel Aviv Maccabee rebranded 
But once they did call themselves Palestine FA, he underwrote tours around the world. So you had very, very influential, powerful people choosing um, with international connections, choosing the Jewish side and helping create the impression that they were the national, the only national side in Palestine. But as you said earlier, essentially there were two narratives. Like there was obviously mm. one Jewish, one Palestinian. Yeah. And I was wondering, you know, if you also can give us a sense of uh, where the football players, where are the people playing on both sides? And also where did they play? Because some of the stadiums are still recognizable nowadays, but mm. obviously I suppose that some of the football pitches uh, that gave birth to football in Palestine, both of the Arab and, and, and the Jew Zionists, might have disappeared at some point. Well, yes. I mean, this is uh, a wonderful question. The most famous stadium in, uh, there's two famous stadiums, I would say, um, old stadiums. The first one is the YMCA Stadium in Jerusalem. Um, the, the YMCA was built in the 1920s with, uh, as part of the YMCA spreading out around the world. It was, uh, I believe, American Christian money, but it quickly became um, a club where the wealthiest Jerusalem Arabs would go and play tennis. Um, it was where they met and mingled with the British and British authorities. Um, and so it's one of the areas where a well-to-do Palestinian would feel kind of at one with the British authorities, and at least in the 1920s, uh, before things really turned violent. The 1920s are surprisingly peaceful, I think. You could correct me on that, but that was my impression. Uh, and certainly, if you, if you played tennis, if you were well-to-do, you went to the YMCA. Well, the YMCA also had a football pitch, so people started playing football there. And uh, the British military sides played there, and the first league was a British military league that welcomed a few local sides in. The Jerusalem Police Force, for instance, Jerusalem Police Force was predominantly Jewish, but there were Palestinian uh, policemen at the time. Um, so that, that's an important stadium, and it becomes increasingly important in the 1930s. Um, and fought is when a league restarts. And I'll come back to that when we talk about Betar. The other big stadium is the one which now is the stadium for uh, Maccabee Tel Aviv. But at the time, Maccabee Tel Aviv played in um, off, off one of the main, I've forgotten the name of the main street in, uh, that I'm thinking of in, in Tel Aviv. But they played at the top of Tel Aviv, close to where the market is. Then as Tel Aviv expanded to the north, the stadium moved further north. And Josef Yekatieli, who I'm, um, I didn't mention him by name earlier, but he was the guy who set up the Palestinian Football Association under the sponsorship of uh, British industrialists. He was also involved in town planning in Tel Aviv. So he would, he would set up state, he would, set up stadiums and housing around the stadiums and it became a way for um, 
a way to kind of build neighborhoods. So the, the Maccabee Tel Aviv Stadium did move a few times. Um, but now it's, it's in Jaffa. And the reason it's in Jaffa is that that's the stadium that the, uh, the Jaffa Palestinian Arab teams used. Uh, it was it used to hold uh, a kind of Palestinian national games in the 1930s that was sponsored by, again, by, by a, the Palestinian Youth Party. And it was used to sponsor the equivalent of an FA Cup that the Palestinians tried to get going in the early 1930s. And it, it, it I mean, like, <laughs> like the story of so many things in Palestine and Israel, it was uh, captured in 1948 and very quickly became uh, the major stadium for, for, the, for the state of Israel. And it, the money to, the money to turn it into a modern stadium came from a, a Canadian Jewish health fund. Um, so shall we talk about Betar and what happened at the YMCA? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, let's move to uh, Jerusalem. Let's talk about Beitar. Beitar Jerusalem is such a controversial team mm. uh, with a very interesting, fascinating story and very much connected to politics. So... Mm. Where is this team from? I mean, who are the people involved in the, the establishment and why is such a controversial team? Well, I mean, right from the start, Betar were a very controversial uh, political party. 
it's not talked about much in Israel. Um, but the founders of Betar were the people who set up the Jewish Fascist Party of Palestine in the late 20s. Um, major figures in Betar had been in Italy. Uh, the, the leader of the Stern Gang was recruited while he was a student in Italy, and he was a fascist supporter. Um, the, the, Jewish, the Jewish Fascist Party was behind the march uh, a, a march in 1929 to the what was then called the Wailing Wall, and it was one of the catalysts for the attempt by people in Hebron to get to Jerusalem um, a couple of weeks, well, the week afterwards, to try and what to try and confront the the Jewish nationalists of the time, and their failure to get to Jerusalem led to the led to the attack on the. Uh, on the yeshiva in Hebron, which now is remembered as the Hebron massacre. So this small group of people who, who were fascist sympathizers living in Jerusalem and ultimately became Betar were already exerting a huge amount, having a, an effect way beyond their numbers, which were fairly small. And that there's a a variety of reasons for this. One is that they were fairly well educated. They were extremely um, right wing and they got control of um, a paper that hitherto had been like the Daily Mail, the Hebrew version of the Daily Mail, but they, uh, they took control of it in the 1930s. Um, and they formed Betar Jerusalem, the, the sporting club that was um, uh, kind of the social association of the political party and also the youth club of the political party, which was a common way of doing politics at the time. You'd have the political party, but then you would also have the youth wing. They, they quickly affiliated with Betar, which was um, a big political party in Poland and had branches across Europe. But when we tell the history of Betar, we tend to tell it as this kind of European-wide global story of, of a political association. It doesn't really tell us what Betar Jerusalem was like because it was separate, clearly from geography, distance and sea, it was separate from Europe and it had its own leaders and it had its own newspaper um, and it had its own football team. But another thing that happened, it was actually separate from the rest of Palestine. All of the Jewish cities were on the coast and Jerusalem, especially by 1936 in the general strike, uh, was really cut off. Um, it was, there was no football leagues because you simply couldn't get football coaches traversing the country to any kind of timetable because they'd be stopped in um, roadblocks all of the time. So the leagues were just abandoned, and, they, and um, the Jewish on the Jewish side, they just ran a small football league around the Tel Aviv area. Um, so Betar Jerusalem, this youth side, an extremely right wing, and associated really with fascists, and continued people like Stern continued to be associated with fascists and using that using that title for themselves when other people had uh, abandoned it. They oddly started playing. British and Palestinian sides 
because they were the only people you could play in Jerusalem. And there was a cup called the Flowers Cup. Um, one of the gates in Jerusalem is called Flowers Gate in Hebrew, or the word, the Hebrew word translates as Flowers Gate. Um, and which gate is that? That's, um, I can't remember which gate it is. It's the one by the, it's the, one by the Palestine, Palestine Museum, what's now called the Rockefeller Museum. So, um, so there, there was a football league and uh, Betar Jerusalem played in it. And um, as the general strike went on, uh, obviously she generated into violence and you've got the British cracking down in various ways on the Palestinian side. But um, there was a wave of violence from Betar and it was the Jerusalem Betar that, that was doing it. And some of them, they pioneered uh, car bombs and some of their car bombs were, were killed so many people that there just hadn't been terrorism activity that, as destructive as this anywhere, really. Um, so the British were trying to crack down on Betar Jerusalem, but they thought the best way of infiltrating them was to allow the football, the football to continue and plant police spies in the crowd to try and identify people like Stern. So football continued in order to spy on Betar Jerusalem. And the, all of the games happened in the YMCA stadium. And there was a, there were one of the reasons that the YMCA stadium became the stadium for the Jewish side was that, um, again, Jerusalem was much more religious than the rest of the country, and religious as a Jewish city. And the ultra-Orthodox Jews of Jerusalem just simply did not allow football to be played on a Saturday. This, is, this continues to be a problem today. They would just stop the matches. So there were the, the Jewish football teams that existed besides Betar Jerusalem couldn't play because uh, Jewish, Jewish ultra-Orthodox protesters stopped them from playing. But Betar Jerusalem didn't care about this and continued playing at the YMCA. And eventually, eventually they were banned, but um, they, they created, this, the 1930s created the legend of a side, of the first side of Betar. And then most, most of Betar people, certainly in Jerusalem, ended up getting uh, sent away during the war. If they weren't arrested, they were sent to prison camps in Africa of uh, prison uh, somewhere underground, and they did continue to be terrorist campaigns through the Second World War. But on the whole, Betar Jerusalem just ceased to exist, and it was revived in 1948, 1949, with this myth of being the fighting side. And I think one of the one of the uh, one of the odd things about Betar Jerusalem, as we talk about it today. Is that it's founded on a myth, but it's not really the people who created the myth who who are the supporters anymore. Uh, it's Mizrahi Jews who kind of got plonked in Jerusalem and loved football anyway because football spread out all over the Middle East and Arab speakers, whether they're uh, ethnic Arab or uh, Jewish Arab speakers, just love football. So. Uh, Mizrahi Jews were dumped in quite windy, cold housing estates in Jerusalem and started supporting the local team, 
Betar Jerusalem, which were a very second-rate team for 20 years, um, from 1948 through to 1968. They were just a local bad side, fed on right-wing ideas of being the fighting side, of being the only Jerusalem side, of being this. Everyone else was a traitor because there is no Zionism without Jerusalem. Zion means Jerusalem. Uh, so there's a, and all of the other football teams in the country were just simply leftists, leftists who were sunning themselves on the beach rather than living in Jerusalem. Um, and it, in 1968, for the first time, Betar managed to get into the top, top flight and, in a sense, haven't looked back since. You talked about already some of one of the most important controversies about uh, Beitar Jerusalem, which is this group known as mm. La Familia, uh, which can translate the family, mm. which is problematic in many ways. And just, go, just going beyond the question of hooliganism and mm. obviously the, the sort of a racism that is embedded, but you already mentioned the fact that this group is essentially made up of Mizrahi Jews, so Jews of Arab origins. But one of the sort of main themes uh, that sort of bring together this group of people, and according to some of the uh, observers, they do represent nearly 30% of the supporters of Beitar Jerusalem, mm. is that they don't want Arabs to play for Beitar Jerusalem. Now, obviously, this is like a paradox in Israeli society, which also dates back the very origin of the state when Mizrahi Jews were uh, first ostracized, considered as a, a potential fifth column within the state and sort of brainwashed to give up their own Arab identity, despite the fact mm -hmm. that they're obviously Arabs. But you, and in the book, you talk about it, that you actually some sort of uh, embedded and talk to members of La Familia. And so I was wondering if you can tell us who are these people, what do they want, and where is their strength, and why, they still, why do they still exist, despite all of the various uh, actions taken by both the team itself, so the club, mm. it's a bit shady here, obviously, but also the Israeli football associations. So what is La Familia? Why do they still uh, out there? Well, La Familia are the Betar Jerusalem Ultras. Um, unlike all Ultras, they're essentially a kind of, essentially a kind of criminal organization. A, a criminal organization that, that, because football is a very dodgy industry, the clubs tend to, um, tend to tolerate. And why do I say they're criminal? Well, a lot of it's to do with tickets. La Familia can sell tickets, buy tickets, um, spread tickets to supporters, and they can fill up stadiums. Uh, they're regarded as the keenest fans, and they get preferential treatment off the clubs, uh, which turn a blind eye to things like their scalping organizations, um, and well, often protection rackets. And in, it's not, an, you, I, I don't know if you know now that Betar Jerusalem plays in a stadium called the Teddy Stadium, which is in, it's by a mall in the part of Jerusalem that's right next to Bethlehem. In fact, you can, you can see the stadium for, from the highest point in Bethlehem. Um, 
Well, until very recently, the owners of, of, of Betar Jerusalem had gave the, gave the La Familia rooms inside where they had their clubhouse and they, which they also had a gym. So it was a, they were a social club who um, were part, so much part of a fabric of the club that you couldn't really extricate you couldn't extricate them from the club. They they regarded themselves and were accepted by the club as representing the real heart and the racism is part of it. The banner says forever pure, which means that they've only ever had Jewish players, which is untrue. That they've had players from around the world, but and they've had Muslim players, but they've never had um, they've never had Arab Palestinian Arab uh, players which is unusual in Israel. Most, almost all of the other teams have had, to an extent, have had uh, if Arab, Arab Palestinians playing for them. Uh, so La Familia, uh, even the name La Familia is, is such a, a stupid joke. I mean, you're obviously Italian, you know they spelt it wrong. Um, they, they've taken it from, gangster films without really understanding how to spell it, what it means. It's just, it's like calling themselves the Mafia or the Godfather. Um, but it does hark back to this myth of Betar as being the fighting family. Um, the term fighting family emerged in 1948 because there were actually several right wing. By the end of the war, there'd been a variety of splits within the Betar terrorist groups. And there were more than one Betar associated terrorist groups. And they tend, after they all got together to try and form the new party of Likud, well, the forerunner of Likud, um, they kind of buried the hatchet and started calling themselves the fighting family, which glossed over all of the arguments between them. And I, I think it's always been my hunch that they called themselves La Familia to harken back to Betar being the fighting family of Jerusalem uh, on top of thinking themselves the Corleones of Jerusalem because they are a crime family. Uh, and there was, they were raided. Uh, when I wrote the book, they, they, that year they were raided. So what are we talking about, like 2018 now? And it was unbelievable how many weapons, you know, they, they found weapons and explosives. I mean, they're a really heavily armed group. Um, I've, the, bit, the headline news, I guess, these days is that La Familia don't, apparently don't have the power they had in their heyday. They're no longer, I believe they no longer have rooms inside the Collect Stadium that, that, they regard as their own and have access to. And I believe they're no longer allowed to unfurl the, the flag, which is the you know, forever pure flag. Um, but, and this is because the, there are new tech owners of, of, uh, of the club who've also oddly tried to reach out to uh, Gulf investors which fell through but even the fact that it was tried for for a little while which is just remarkable i mean the previous owner of betar jerusalem had briefly changed the name of the club to betar trump jerusalem to celebrate the fact that that donald trump had moved the embassy 
to, to Jerusalem and declared the, that the city was whole. This was the last act of the previous owners. And on changing its name, he immediately sold it. The name change was quietly forgotten. The new owners said that they were going to get rid of La Familia, bought in various backers, including a gulf backer. And although that fell through, it's still remarkable. So I guess we're going to have to wait and see whether La Familia continue to exert the kind of influence they have in the past. But uh, I mean, we see in, in Hungary, especially, uh, as well as you know, Italy, um, this week in Holland, in Rotterdam, just how strong ultra, ultras are within a football club. And I think they're impossible to root out. Um, as ticket prices have shot up in value and as it's difficult to get tickets for stadiums, groups that can supply tickets to the hardcore fans are always going to have a place. But um, And clubs aren't likely to stamp down on them. So I don't know what the future of La Familia is. It's, I find it very difficult to believe that they're going to disappear. It is the same, I guess, as you mentioned in other countries. You have these groups, they do exist. Some have been marginalized, depending on the policies of the various governments. Uh, we saw that in Italy. We certainly saw that in, in Britain uh, in the 1990s. Uh, but they, they still exist. And uh, it's hard to uh, kind of fully remove them because they provide mm. certain services, again, selling tickets to our core funds uh, and maybe at a cheaper prices, but then they, they do other things. Uh, and so mm. just increasing the prices is not good enough. And I think politics is uh, inherently connected with, uh, with football. I mean, there's something, there's mm. a relationship and politicians do understand that. And they may disappear from football stadiums for a while, but then mm. when they need, they go back because they know that they can get votes out of uh, out of that stadiums and so uh, and I think that, you're right. that's especially true of Betar Jerusalem because they are the team of Likud uh, there aren't many teams anywhere else in the world that are so closely related with a single political party and the problem is that the La Familia remind uh, remind Likud that their roots are in this extreme right wing European the 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 most extreme of European right-wing organizations, in fact, fascist organizations, although I should perhaps add Italian fascism was always the model rather than German fascism. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would agree that, that there's a deep connection between Betar Jerusalem and the old ideology of Italian fascism, but uh, looking into the, the, the network of uh, uh, supporters, you can see how Betar is also twinned with uh, teams, like particularly in Italy, uh, Lazio, which famously is, mm. you know, sort of connected to, to fascist yeah, organizations. So obviously there's also an international network of mm. these teams who do share the same ideology. Well, especially Lazio is associated with the port of Rome, I believe. And that's where Betar had, where Mussolini set up the Betar training camp. So Betar literally had a training camp inside the military port of Rome. And um, they they supported Lazio at the time. Absolutely. And, and you can get to see the same current teams like uh, Beitar is anti-Arab and so Lazio supporters often boo, uh, you know, players of colors and uh, they mm. criticize the owners for acquiring players from certain backgrounds. So obviously the ideology is very much the same. There's one game that normally in Jerusalem 
is highly problematic. And this is the game between Beitar and uh, Neisakne. Sakne is a team, yeah. uh, is a Palestinian team, the only one playing mm. in the uh, top Israeli league from, from the north, uh, mm. close to sort of the tip point of the West Bank, um, not far away mm. from Nazareth and that region, just to geographically locate it. And, and that game mm. is still, uh, you know, often the, the, the cause of uh, large troubles and violence mm. caused by, obviously, Beitar fans and La Familia. I was wondering, have you ever watched live one of those games? No, and it, it's, um, yeah, it's a source of disappointment that, that I haven't. They're, they're difficult to get into. I would have to stand on the, um, among, in the Jewish side to, to see them, really. Um, because the Sacknin fans are bust in. Um, you can only get in if you're on a particular coach. So I would have to set off from Sacknin, which I really should have done and I haven't done. Um, I wish I had. Sacknin, I think, aren't the only team in the Premiership at the moment, but they're certainly, they've got the only Arab team in the Premiership at the moment because the Nazareth team, I believe, are, are in this season. And Sacknin dropped out two seasons ago, but bounced back up. And it's true that Sacknin are, are the most successful Palestinian Arab side. They're not, they don't play the prettiest football, but clearly it's been effective over a long time. And what's so peculiar about them is that, I mean, the reason that we're having to explain where Sacknin is is because it's the tiniest place you can imagine. It's, it's a village in, um, in the Galilee region, which is the mountainous region uh, that overlooks the lake and is the route over to uh, the coast, Nazareth and Haifa. Um, so it, it's a tiny, tiny little village that's uh, completely surrounded by a, what you might call internal settlements. Um, Israel's gone through a lot of trouble to build disparate communities all linked together that's, that take over all of those hills to create a kind of um, a Judaicized Galilee. Uh, so Sacknin is separate, um, very small, and for some reason has has managed to, to 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 build the best football team. It's it's the result of merging two earlier football sides, and it was just very brilliantly done by a very talented uh, Palestinian Israeli politician. For, for political for political reasons, yeah, as all these things are, it's all politics is always at the heart of everything. He's the mayor of the town. As we reach the conclusion of the interview, I just wanted to ask you something. Is there anything that I didn't ask, but you want to talk about football in Palestine or Jerusalem that I didn't ask? I feel that I just taught the hind legs off a donkey. Um, I can't. I, I felt at times as though I was recounting my entire book from memory. So I, I'm sure that in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and go, oh my God, I didn't talk about that. Um, there's a strong, the link, we talked about the link between political parties and football clubs. But in Israel, which prides itself on being the tech startup nation, there's a strong link between tech startups and clubs these days. And tech billionaires are the people who look to look likely to be the next generation of politicians in Israel. So I guess if I look forward, I might be exploring that line 
but I don't know if I'll write another book. This was Nicholas Blinko, author, critic, and screenwriter, but also, you know, author of two very, very important books. One uh, we mentioned earlier, published in 2017, Bethlehem, Biography of a Town, but more importantly, uh, published in 2019, More Noble Than War, with two titles, one for European uh, um, audience, the story of football in Israel and Palestine, and for the American audience, a soccer history of Israel-Palestine. Nicolas, thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.